It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the program. In Episodes 88... 89 and 90, I was refuting relativism's moral argument. If you recall, I have shown that argument commits a fallacy. Moreover, I have also shown premise one is false. Besides that, I've shown that premise two is in direct violation of a primary Christian doctrine about unredeemed humanity as being in the depths of sin. This doctrine is discussed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Some time ago in this program, I have shown Christianity is true in its basic claims that the first cause of the universe is identical to the God of the Bible. Jesus is the Son of God. The Bible is the Word of God. And miracles not only are possible, but are the acts of God. Thus, given that Jesus says God's word is truth in John 17, verse 17, it follows that premise two is also false. Therefore, relativism's moral argument is shown manifestly to fail, as it is not only refuted in one way, but in three ways. With that being accomplished, permit me to continue the discussion of the passage Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. I've been describing three enslaving forces for humanity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In the last episode, I began discussing the world. Now I turn the discussion to the flesh and the devil. I begin by mentioning some comments by Peter Kreeft, a teacher of philosophy at Boston College and author of 67 books at last count. Kreeft says, The major event in the history of the world for the past 500 years has been the decline of the influence of religious faith in Western civilization. In a lecture on YouTube called Blaise Pascal, and the new evangelization, Crafe lists four causes for this decline. I will mention only two. First, Crafe says we have a crisis of reason. You can't have faith unless you have reason as a trustworthy process, just as you can't have crops without fertilized ground. Second, Crave mentions we have a crisis of morality. The world is not only skeptical about reason, but the world is also skeptical about morality as well. We are living in the first civilization of the history of the world, 
where the majority of intellectuals and of the decision makers no longer believe in the moral law. Kraft continues, this is a spectacular change. In the past, cultures have argued what's in the moral law about what is to be emphasized in it and about what is right and what is wrong. But no culture has ever massively denied the objective existence of the moral law. We are now living in history's most radical experiment. What are the future consequences of this worldwide radical experiment? The picture that Kraft paints is rather bleak. He says there are only three possible futures for civilization. One, either the world will repent of its moral skepticism and relativism and return to moral wisdom and quite possibly flourish, or Two, otherwise the world will persist in relativism, and since no culture has ever been healthy without a system of moral absolutes, the culture will die. Or, three, we will prove one of the most certain laws of history, that without morality, culture may continue to exist, but not flourish. Let me add some observations by the Christian apologist J. Warner Wallace. Wallace is a former Los Angeles cold case detective who's been featured several times on NBC's Dateline program because of his success in solving cold cases. Wallace is the author of several Christian books, including Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, and forensic faith. In chapter 14 of Cold Case Christianity, Wallace writes that in all his years of working in homicides, he came to discover that only three broad motives lie at the heart of any murder. Wallace also writes, as it turns out, these three motives are also the same driving force behind other types of misbehavior. They are the reasons why we sometimes think what we shouldn't think, say what we shouldn't say, or do what we shouldn't do. The three motives to which Wallace alludes are financial greed, sexual or relational desire, and pursuit of power. Wallace says sex, money, and power are the motives for all the crimes detectives investigate. These three motives are also behind lesser sins as well. Think about the last time you did something you shouldn't have. If you examine the motivation carefully, you will probably see that it fits broadly into one of these three categories. In Ephesians 2, Verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul says the second captivity is the lusts of the flesh. Flesh is a very important term in the New Testament, so we should be clear what it means. You notice that this term is used twice in this third verse of Ephesians 2. In the lusts of our flesh, 
fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. It is obvious that the apostle uses the word flesh in two different senses. Otherwise, he is just repeating himself. First, he uses flesh in a general sense, and then he uses it in a particular sense. In God's way of reconciliation, David Martin Lloyd-Jones says flesh is used in Scripture in four ways. First, to represent the whole of mankind, as in Isaiah 40, verse 6 in the sentence, all flesh is grass, and all the loveliness is like the flower of the field. Second, to describe the covering of our bones, muscles, fat, ligaments, etc., as in Job 19, verse 26, where Job says, I shall see God in my flesh. Third, to denote that which is the complete antithesis to the Holy Spirit, as in Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to the one to the other. And fourth, to the sensuous part of our fallen, self-centered human nature. Someone might say, how am I ever going to know for sure to which reference Paul is using the word flesh at any given point? The answer is quite simple. If you consider the context, you can never go wrong. Take, for instance, this example here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Among whom also we had our conversation. Lifestyle is what that means. In times past, in the lusts of our flesh. Note Paul said, we all had in our lifestyles. So here he is meaning the whole of mankind. Then Paul writes, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. So because in this second instance, flesh is used as the opposite of the mind, a part of the person involving the intellect, thoughts, reason, intuition, etc., the apostle no longer refers to the whole of mankind. It is not the living tissue that covers our bony skeleton either. Thus, Paul is referring to one of the meanings three and four. Which of the two is it then? Paul adds, quotes, were by nature children of wrath. The word nature points to definition four for the flesh, the sensuous part of our being, our fallen, self-centered human nature. In the message of Ephesians, John Stott says, two clarifications are needed. First, there is nothing wrong with the natural bodily desires, whether for food, sleep, or sex. For God has made the human body that way. It is only when the appetite for these becomes all-consuming that it is wrong. When the desires for food becomes gluttony, the desire for sleep becomes sloth, and the desire for sex becomes lust, then this is where the natural desires have been perverted into sinful desires. Secondly, the desires of the flesh include the whole array of wrong desires of the mind as well as of the body. 
Sin is not just big things like murder, blasphemy, infanticide, and genocide, but also includes such sins as greed, intellectual pride, false ambition, rejection of known truth, hatred of enemies, malicious or vengeful thoughts, and deceit of the tongue. Indeed, according to Paul's exposition in Philippians 3, verses 3 through 6, the flesh covers all forms of self-confidence, even pride of ancestry, parentage, race, religion, etc. Wherever self rears its ugly head against God or man, then this is where the desires of the flesh are present. The third captivity is what Paul names the prince of the power of the air. He means the devil, the title for the fallen angelic being who is the supreme enemy of God and of humanity. Satan is his most common name. Other names for him are the evil one, the god of this world, Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, or Lucifer. But the devil is what he is in essence, the accuser or deceiver. Jesus said he was the father of lies. For some time, it has been unfashionable in the church worldwide to believe in a personal devil or personal demonic intelligences under his rulership. I've had people say to me that it is foolish to believe in those superstitious ideas. Not too long ago, belief in the devil would have given people opportunity to question your sanity with perhaps one exception, the sanity for a priest. But there are some indication that things are changing. Dr. M. Scott Peck, a psychiatrist and author of The Road Less Traveled, a book that sold over 1.5 million copies, and now the author of People of the Lie, which is on its way to matching the earlier work's success. Between the first and second of these books, Peck not only came to believe in a personal devil, he also became a Christian. What has produced such a change? One thing is the sheer reality of evil. But another thing is, I see no obvious reason to abandon the plain teaching of Jesus and his apostles not to mention the church of the subsequent centuries who endorsed their malevolent existence. I close this episode with John Wesley's covenant prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. 
and the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott.